So all my prison life, first as a governor, and then later when I joined the NHS, I wanted to work at Grendon because, again, I think focused on this statement of purpose. For me, therapeutic prisons have a particular role in managing that tension. And I really wanted to be part of an organization that looked on treating crime, particularly violent crime, as a sort of the clinical model, uh, a social model, psychosocial fit. That's, that's the only prison that actually states that fully up front, or at least it was. Hi, I'm Naomi Murphy, and this is the Locked Up Living podcast, where we talk with a wide range of people about harsh aspects of institutional life. We also explore some of the ways to overcome them and to grow and develop. I'm David Jones. So join us every Wednesday morning, six o'clock UK time, for a fresh podcast. So Mary Haley was, until very recently, head of psychotherapy at HMP Grendon, the only fully therapeutic prison in the UK which, incidentally, celebrates its 60th anniversary in 2022. We're very pleased to be talking with Mary because she has an unusual career pathway working in different roles within the prison service. Hi, Mary. Hi, David. Hi, Naomi. Hi, Mary. Really delighted you're able to join us today, so really good to get to have a proper conversation with you. Mary, could you tell us about yourself and how you came to be working in prisons? Um, well, if I go right back to school, my headmistress told me I'd end up in prison. I just don't think she ever expected me to have keys when I was there. Um, but literally, it, it was quite a checkered use, and I really only started to look at a career after I'd had my, my child. and. I'd go into um, move. Sorry, I thought I would move away from the commercial world. I'd had several jobs, and I knew that I wanted to work in the public sector. Um, I looked at probation. I looked at social work, and I don't know. Prisons just had a a draw for me. There were lots of people there. Many of them wanted to make changes to their life. Some of them were very angry, but there was just a People, you go in to work every day and see people that, that wanted to do something different. And I don't know, I just got involved with it that way, really, um, wanting to, to be part of making a difference. What, what were you doing beforehand that, that made oh, you think God. you wanted to, to do something very different? Um, well, for lots of years, I was a secretary. Um, in the days where people would put their arms around you and say, there, there, sweetie, go make the tea. And I thought there's got to be more to life than this. I taught English in Sicily for a while, and that was that was great. Um, but I was homesick. And I just thought, no, I need to go and do further education and actually get a career and have something with a purpose to it, really. The fact that you taught English in Sicily might suggest that you're good at pushing yourself outside your comfort your comfort zone. It's not a not a natural career for many British people, is it? Thank you. I mean, you don't think about that. You never think about yourself, do you, as something outside the, the norm, because it is the norm for you. So I'd never really thought about it till you said that. But yeah, I think you're right. I do 
I am pushy. <laughs> well, I think you must have had a sense of adventure about you to to take the risk of, of doing that and leaving everything that was familiar to do to do that. But you you mentioned that you studied literature and philosophy at university. How did how did that prepare you for subsequent work? Um I loved the course. It was again doing something I wanted to do. So I think that in itself was part of it, realizing that you can actually put a lot more work in if it doesn't feel like work. Philosophy was well, literature was was really just just enjoyable. But the philosophy really taught you about how one argument can be as good as another. Um, how people often used powers of persuasion rather than logical argument, how people can get um, absolutely um, drawn into the various myths that are around in their life and believe them as fact. And that was really important in prisons, I think, because the I'm born to hate society, I'm born to be violent, it's just a myth that somebody tells himself. Um, one of my phrases to, to men in therapy quite often was there's no cat A babies. Now, there might be an embryonic cat A baby at age about 12 months when bad things have happened. So I think philosophy was really very much of, you know, you can look with a blank piece of paper um, and it doesn't have to be the way it always has been. It's really interesting to think of it like that because I think one of the concepts that the prison service is fond of talking about is new me, isn't it? But I think actually sometimes it can be more helpful to talk about the real you that you are destined to become rather than have to reinvent yourself as a whole individual. Absolutely. And in fact, the term new me really gets me quite annoyed because I think, no, actually, old you kept you alive in very skewed and very damaging and very hurtful ways at times, but you were doing the best you could. And rather than say, I want to be new me, I think it's much more helpful to say, thank you, old me, um, made some mistakes, I'll take it from here. And another thing that I think is really important about not saying old me was bad, old me is still me. So how can I trust myself to make the changes I want to make? if the person who did things in the past is totally untrustworthy. So I think it has to be I was doing my best rather than that was a different person. I really like that way of looking at things as well because I think what you're, what you're highlighting is how often we can end up writing people off because they've done something awful and they're in prison and yet we know when we work in prisons that we see moments of real kindness, humanity, uh, real generosity of spirit in prison. We don't just see things that are frightening and, and disgusting, do we? Absolutely. And I, I also find it almost psychotic that a, a sort of mob approach to, to some of the media stories, you know, do you remember there's, you see these awful stories about children who've been abused and killed? And I can remember somebody saying quite high up in the prison service, if that baby, that toddler had survived, you'd have probably been baying for his breath, you know, the awful things he'd done. And actually, we as a society, I think we all have a responsibility 
for people not to become violent when they're tiny. Yeah, yeah. thank you, Mary. And um, so you, you explained that you you tra trained and worked as a prison officer later on than than some people might have joined joined prison service. Was the culture an easy one to fit into after working as a secretary and and um, teaching languages? Um, yeah, it was it was different. Um, in those days, male and female prisons were totally separate. Um, so, I, tr I, I being the ripe old age of over twenty four, I only did three months as prison officer, not a year. Um, so it was kind of whirlwind tour. So I did nights, I did escort duty, um, working in kitchens and things. Um, and it was it was interesting. I mean, even in those early days, you got the splitting. I can remember one prison officer, female, that I was introduced to, and she shook hands with me. And then they said she's a trainee governor, and she spat on her hand and wiped it. Um, but then again. She was she was lovely in the end, and the, nearly all of the others as well were very warm and supportive. Um, I think being in an all female prison as well was the first time I'd worked in an environment that wasn't dominated by men, um, although most of the governors were men in those days. Um, so it was different. It was nice. I got my first experience of, of a prisoner trying to groom me too. Saying, could I bring some shoes in and leave them with the distressed prisoner's clothing so she could get them and wear them for court? Uh, no, I can't do that. I spoke to somebody. So, yeah, it's different. You've also worked in establishments for male, male prisoners as well, haven't you? You've, you've got only oh, yeah. worked in, in women's prisons. And I think you probably spent longer working in prisons for men than prisons for women. The only time that I was in a women's prison was during that training for three months. Um, I spent some time with women's policy group, but nearly all of my working experience has been adult male prisons. So what's it, what was it like working as a woman in the prison system in those days? You know, do you think it carried any additional challenges as, as a female staff member? Uh, yes, uh, and we're, we're going way back into the mid 1980s here. Um, I think it was just something you coped with uh, because that's how life was. And I found that most of my male colleagues would either be protective or dismissive. Um, the fact that I'm really short didn't help either. I could almost feel people patting you on the head. Oh, well done. You know, so you've done something. So, and I noticed I used to sit down a lot at meetings or, or rest on a table. Because I noticed if I was in a group of male governors who were talking, they would talk to each other and I'd get left out. And they, they weren't meaning to, yeah. uh, but it just made a difference. Um, and female governors were very supportive of each other. There were so few of us. But I do remember one person who seemed to, uh, I don't know, have a real problem working with male governors and she said to me one day, have you been blooded yet? I said, I'm sorry, what do you mean? And she talked about fox hunting but to get kids used to it. And I, I, to this day, I don't know what she meant. But generally speaking, I think there were good supportive uh, colleagues. Um, 
but they were of their time and would be uh, yeah, thinking women weren't quite up to the job as much um, and surprised if you were, but but happy for you if you were. And do you think the culture's changed a lot over over the time that you've been involved in prisons? Um, certainly in terms of male and female gender, yes, because they're much more mixed. And in terms of general culture, well, yes, it's definitely changed. You, you, know, you only have to look at uh, newspaper articles about problems in prison with spice and drones bringing things in. Um, but I have to say, taking the long view and looking at it, I don't think the prison service has ever stopped changing. It's always been changing and it's been something of a pendulum, you know, sort of security is more important, rehabilitation is more important. Oh, no, rehabilitation is more important. And it's nearly always in a, um, a reaction to something that's happened. I, you know, this prison services statement of purpose is two paragraphs. One, our duty is to look after, um, to, to keep in custody those committed by the courts. And two, to help them to lead law-abiding lives inside and outside treatment with humanity. And if you think about it, I think those two things at their polar extremes are mutually exclusive. You know, you keep people in custody. If you don't worry about any human rights, that's a doddle. You can engender self-development and growth, but that attaches huge risks to it. And I think the job of the prison service is to manage the tension between those two. And that's why I think it, it does move from one to another over time. At the moment, we've had way back austerity, which you know, obviously had an impact on public sector. Then, of course, we've had the pandemic with how people feel aggrieved. We've got um, having to make up money for that. And that usually leads to a much more focus on the first paragraph. We keep people in custody. Um, forgetting that vast majority come out and we have to then stop them going in. So, yeah, it's changed, but I think it will change again. A lot seems to, to me, to depend upon the kind of current uh, political climate and how divided society is. And the more divided society is, then the more likely a group of politicians will be to look round for scapegoats and the prison service or prisoners at any rate um, are often quite a handy target in that that respect but anyway you might anyway. say that David I couldn't possibly comment <laughs> <laughs> yes thank you <laughs> almost 20 I think it was almost 20 years ago anyway you had a, a, a major career change can you tell us about that and and why you did it um yeah, actually, I, I, I didn't have a major career change. I had a major career staying the same when all around me was changing. Governors in the old days used to be much more like caseworkers, um, those based in prisons and to take responsibility. Now, back in 1988, that changed and governors, quite rightly, became responsible for their prisons and line management throughout their prison and for the prison budgets as opposed to just getting more money from the treasury each time. So we became, say we, as I was then, um, much more managers of prisons and prison departments. Now, I think that was the right step. 
for the prison service, but it wasn't the right step for me. I joined to be more of that, as I say, I looked at social work, I looked at probation. So I gave it a go and it was all right. Um, but as time went on, I thought this isn't what I want. And once my personal circumstances allowed me to cut back from work and work part time, I looked at training, do I train psychology, do I train social work again or, or psychotherapy and psychotherapy seemed the one for me. So, um, so it was actually trying to keep doing the work I had enjoyed. Uh, I must admit, I didn't expect to come back in prisons. I just thought, okay, it won't be prisons anymore. I'll, I'll work as a psychotherapist and see where that takes me. But like any walk of life where you've got your expertise and your experience, that's where you get offered the work. So, um, yeah, uh, it was actually trying to stay the same rather than I need to change my career. Well, that's a very interesting take on it, uh, Mary. I haven't heard it put in those terms before, but I'm sure you're, you're right, because the earliest governors that I can remember, well, there was a chap called Adrian Arnold, who was around when I was a young man. Um, and working in the Simon community and he was very involved with projects like the uh, Simon community and then of course um, Tim Newell when I went to Grendon first of all they were very much in the kind of mould that I think you were referring to um, but, but they were obviously the last of a, a string. We wanted to say something about the the role of the uh, the wing therapist Absolutely. Yeah. Um, as I said, I had planned to sort of stay doing casework and within that I trained as a psychotherapist. But in fact, I found psychotherapy training, obviously, in hindsight, to be a lot more complex. There's a much deeper emphasis on, on who the person is and particularly on the unconscious and a huge emphasis on the fact of, of how important our unconscious is. We unconsciously do driving, shopping, gardening. In fact, when you think about it, there's a massive commercial organization about mindfulness, just proving to us how active the unconscious is all the time. In the case of violent offenders, they're avoiding like anything, the conscious thought. Um, and they certainly don't want to confront the defenses that they unconsciously nurtured and, and, and sometimes for decades. What I'll also say though, working in such a practical organization as the prison service, there's a lot of jargon around psychoanalytic thought. And if I'm really honest, some so-called exponents who hide behind a lot of that jargon. But basically what it is, is saying that we are um, massively impacted by our unconscious 24 7 and it really is 24 7 because that includes our dreams as well um, and, and I mean one of the examples I remember giving to to prisoners is to show how affected you are by your, your unconscious is if, you, if you're feeling ratty you've had a bad parole review or a bad visit somebody knocks into you with a cup of tea you're furious with them but the same thing can happen. And if you're feeling really good, you've got a parole, oh, watch it next time, mate. Totally the same incident, but it's what we bring to it. And we don't know that in that moment of the time. And of course, it is moment to moment. And what the wing therapist is doing 
is trying to all the time spin those plates of helping people see their unconscious in action, confront it, press pause, look at it. And it's not just in groups or even helping other facilitators to, to see what's on in groups. It's all the wing dynamics, including some real anti-group dynamics that can be going on by, by prisoners at times in their efforts to, to avoid it. Um, so that in itself is enough, but there's also quite a focus from other people on the wing therapists to make it okay, make this right, sort it out. And of course, that's impossible. And if that wasn't impossible anyway, just because of the, the, the vastness of it and the variables of it, but there isn't actually that legitimate power to do some of the things that I wanted. Sort out the staffing levels, stop me going on escort, um, sort out staffing shortages, sick absences, find me a space to do supervision. Um, all of these things are, are not within the power. There's some negotiation and influence in some of it, but it, it's asking the impossible because again, that, that's what makes us, us feel safe. Prisoners at the same time. But, but can we talk? Sorry. Can we talk a bit about? Can we talk a bit about power? You've mentioned power, uh, and to me, in my mind, power is a very important part of the role of a wing therapist. It's the recognition of power and when power, where power lies, but it's also the exercise of a, a kind of power which is sort of intangible or ineffable and I think that's what you were just referring to as the exercise of this ineffable power which is mostly to do with containment, containment of people's anxieties and enabling them to take actions on their on their own. That, that seems to me to be very much part of the ring therapist role. I think you're absolutely right and the immediate Shakespearean phrase came to mind, some of greatness thrust upon them, aka power, and it, it is about trying to contain anxieties or perhaps more accurately trying to help people contain their own anxieties and that really is the role of the wing therapist and with, within that, they they do have um, a level of power in the, they have um, a, a greater say in, in which prisoner may or may not stay on the wing, but it's very limited in the, you know, the, the actual execution of that, because if you can't transfer a prisoner out, they have to stay. And then you have to continue trying to contain those anxieties. And as I said, people look to the wing therapist to make it better. So there's a huge temptation sort of not to, well, a need as well, not to show some of those anxieties, but actually to show some of them too, to be able to, to, to model that this is something doable, but it's not something completely resolvable. We learn to manage those emotions and manage those, that anxiety whilst doing what we can do 
but recognizing the things we can't. So it's a it's a very difficult power because it doesn't come with many legitimate activities of who's going to be your member of staff, which prisoners will stay and go. And you're trying to do that modeling the, the, the one of the four pillars of democracy. And of course, being a human being and getting absolutely drained and fed up and angry within all of that and trying to contain your own emotions. So a difficult task. Well, it is very difficult, I think, because the other thing that I think you need to bring as a sort of leader in that group is your own, you need to retain your own creativity and to bring that along to the team and then to be strong enough and brave enough to foster the creativity and the leadership capacity of every other member of the team as well. Um, and, and it's quite difficult to do that if at the same time you're feeling under threat in your own role, of course. Very much so. And, and, and I think creativity, innovation is, is the heart of, of what a wing therapist wants to bring to their wing. They they want to to feel um, free to, to help people express themselves and and to find their own potential. I mean, a therapeutic community is all about helping people to find their own, own potential, and that's their side of the statement of purpose. You know, to go on and lead useful and law-abiding lives. And you can't do that if all you're doing is following rules. You have to find a way to be yourself in the world and be okay with what you can't do and okay with what you can do. So, it, yeah, and everyone will do that their own way. If I think about Brendan, each one of the ring, wing therapists has a very different way of doing it, and that's their strengths. But they need to be supported in, in having the courage to bring that creativity to their wing and 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 not to make it competitive as well not one wing against another but actually together we're stronger and that's the way forward and i mean that's what makes it so challenging and draining and wonderful um and it it, it is that that balance and we need clinical staff wing therapists and governor grades to be recognizing each other's strengths and roles and working together because those two sides of the coin are fantastic you know i mean i think we said the prison service goes from rehabilitation to security all the time it's so important to remember that you know 90 percent of prisoners will be released into the community if we're not doing our bit to empower them to take their place we're just storing up trouble for society Brilliant. I think that's put it uh, very well. I used to love being a wing, wing therapist. I think it's an enormously complicated and multi-layered uh, job, but it's uh, fascinating. And, and I think what you're saying also is that it, you have to always work um, uh, closely and in relation to the operational team who provides the kind of physical safety and containment to the whole unit. Definitely. So 
after training as a psychotherapist and staying the same as you always were, apparently, you worked as an in-reach psychotherapist at a high-security prison. What was that like? Um, yeah, it was really interesting. Um, I was seeing people to do individual uh, psychotherapy once a week. Um, so there's, there's two aspects to it, really. There, there was the clinical work, which was really good. Um, although I must admit thinking, oh, I've got this. I've been in prisons for years and now I'm a super qualified psychotherapist. So I'll be able to work in prison. In fact, I just felt huge role conflict and I didn't know what to do. And I felt completely de-skilled and didn't have a clue where I was going. I was almost apologetic for A, having been a governor and B, having the audacity to call myself a psychotherapist. So I felt really not in a good place at all um but you get used to it and the work was good the work was similar to stuff i'd been doing and it was really good to see people begin to trust you um it was interesting uh, as well that sometimes people would trust me because i was a member of the nhs as opposed to a member of the prison service even though i was exactly the same person um so that was that was interesting. But I also found it was very different working for the NHS as it was for the prison service. And for me, that wasn't a difference that I found very comfortable. I think because I'd spent so many years in the prison service, but I found it very difficult to cope with um, the kind of the trust base that was each trust was a different organization and that they were multifaceted and I, I and I and I found I mean the, the other people there were at ease with this so I'm not I'm not criticizing the NHS but for me it felt much more diverse and fragmented and different departments doing totally different things from from one another so you'd have your acute wards that I could go and work on or you could have the prisons or there could be um yeah, there was eating disorder wards, there, there was general acute wards, there was severe and enduring problems. They, they were all sort of lumped under the same, and I, I found it quite difficult to get my head around. I also found the system of commissioning uh, services something quite arcane and esoteric to me. I mean, again, people there understood it. But for me, I, I found it um, not something that I, I was familiar with. Um, and I think the worst part about it was the, the system of bidding. You know, you would just get a new contract, whether you were, you know, a trust or a, a, a sort of different private sector. And it would, you'd be okay. And then before long, you started to having to look at when the contract came up and what else you would do and how do we make this more cost effective. So I found it, I found it quite alien, actually. So although the people were lovely, the work, we were all doing the same work, but there seemed very different ways of doing it. And also, I think I was used to being a governor. So if a governor wanted to see some of our files 
people would be angry at that and I, I think they're right to but in my heart I was thinking what a governor has to be involved with things so there really was quite a cultural real conflict in there as well so yeah it was, uh, it was okay but I'm glad I did it so I'm glad to be back in the prison cell. So you're referring there to the confidentiality which uh, the NHS quite rightly uh, preserves for its uh, work yeah yeah mm. but I mean I guess I guess for me I was used to it, it, it's I think it does need sorting out actually because you cannot have absolute confidentiality and absolute responsibility in two different areas it needs to be said to to governors you've got this and that's where the boundary if you're going to have NHS staff which of course when I joined we never did have but if they are going to be part of it, then those sorts of areas, demarcation, has to happen, I think. And I don't think it's been thought about. Hmm. When, I, when I worked for the NHS in prisons, um, it took me a while to understand that um, I was seen as being different. Um, so, of course, I worked for the prison service while I was at uh, Grendon, and it, in a way you were all in it together. And I thought it would be the same when I worked for the NHS at uh, Gartry. But every now and again, the veneer would wear thin. And I realised that actually the prison service bit didn't trust me 100%. They trusted me about 75%. <laughs> yeah, I and think even, yeah, yeah. I think even, for instance, on pathway services, which are mainly, you know, the bigger sum of money comes from the NHS... But as a NHS employer, you're very much, you know, you, there isn't a fit. You are you are made to feel like you are an outsider that's that's being lent some trust um, and not necessarily as an equal partner um, within within those projects. But you're also highlighting Mary the problems around commissioning within the NHS, which you know I accept that the people you're working with might not have had that reaction, but people working in all sorts of services across the NHS talk about the impact of, you know, introducing market forces and commissioning um, and what impact that has on, on the NHS and the amount of energy that is involved then in tendering and, and retendering for services. Okay. Um, so was it in 2015 that you moved from... Whitemore to Grendon, where you became head of psychotherapy. Was that the same kind of job? How did it differ? Uh, massively. Um, I guess, you know, I have to acknowledge first thing, I, I felt I'd come home um, back in, in the service. Um, I, it was a so, Sorry, can you, can you just say a bit more about that? You thought you'd come home to the I, service. I, um, I'd worked for 17, 18 years in the prison service. It was so familiar to me. Uh, it, it felt like I'd been um, working abroad by working in the NHS. So I came home then and things have changed a bit. My role was, was different, but um, I was used to the systems, the processes, all, all of that were just so easy it's like muscle memory in a way you just come back to what you're used to so there was there was that about it um uh and i knew 
some of the people as well. So that was nice too. But the role, the role of head of psychotherapy was um, not fully defined, I think, at first. Um, but I think it, it we, we worked through it and it was sort of the, the clinical role, the professional head, not, not sort of line managing other people. Um, and it were, I saw it as being responsible for um, making sure that the clinical work in Brendan could work as best as it can together with the operational staff. Um, having been an operational governor and now being a member of clinical staff, what I wanted most of all was for people to to help people recognize that they're two sides of the same point. Back to those two, um, you know, statement of purpose paragraphs, you know, we can't do the therapy if we haven't got the security of the prison and, you know, both are needed to make it work. So for me, it was about trying to, to make sure that um, I did everything I could to de-jargonize anything to do with, with clinical work and to, to help help us all work in the same way together. Still doing that now, actually. But yeah, so that was it. Plus, I really enjoyed back in the clinical side of things. So was it easy to do that particular uh, task? Oh, of, course, I mean, of course it was. That was week one, David. <laughs> no, of course not. It's, it's an ongoing process all the time um and and i'm not saying that i'm some kind of you know hero figure that comes in and do it you know people are people and you get focused on on what is your immediate thing and and i think that's that's kind of part of the role of of, of psychotherapists within the to take that step back what's going on here why is there some disharmony here? Um, and reminding ourselves of, of that. Um, and why am I part of it? Don't, don't get me wrong. Again, you know, I, I, I could be fed up, I was going to swear then, with, um, with what's going on and angry uh, uh, about different things, different people, with different people, and they with me. Who the hell does she think she is doing all this sort of thing? You know, it was, it's, it's not easy. But thank God it isn't, because that's what makes it challenging. That's what keeps it alive. Um, that what makes you need to take a break, but also glad to come back again. Um, so, yeah, it, it's it's ongoing and it will always be ongoing for, forever. So what was it that appealed to you about working at Grendon? I presume it wasn't just having a, a job in the prison service. It was more than that. Do you know what? The first time Brendan was mentioned to me was right back working in as a trainee prison officer. And the governor said to me, um, oh, and you'll have heard of Brendan. No. And he said to me what it was. And I just thought, oh, my God, that sounds amazing. I really want to do that. So all my prison life, first as a governor, and then later when I joined the NHS, I wanted to work at Brendan because, again, I think focused on this statement of purpose. For me, therapeutic prisons have a particular role in managing that tension. And I really wanted to be part of an organization that looked on 
treating crime, particularly violent crime, as a sort of med not medical model, but a clinical model, uh, a, a social model. It's not a medical, it's a social one. It's a biosocial um, sphere, that, that psychosocial sphere. That's, that's the only prison that actually states that fully up front, or at least it was. So that's why I wanted to work at Brendan. Thank you. So what would you say, thinking about yourself now, what would you say is your underlying approach or your model? What do you bring to the, to the work? Okay, before I answer that, though, you asked me about Brendan last question. I really think it's vital to stay. At the time, there was only Brendan. There's several other places now, including SEND, which has a therapeutic community for women. And I delight that we've got more of them. And I think it's really important. And I'm delighted we've got one for women. And I, I think... You know, that, that whole thing is important. So I don't want to come away from this interview just thinking about Brendan. I think it's TCs in prisons that, that need to be focused on. So back to me. What was the question again? Sorry. Uh, well, actually, this whole podcast is focusing on you, Mary, rather than Brendan or prisons. But I was wondering what your particular style was, what model you use in your work. I got to be clinically informed. Um, and for me, that is a, attachment theory more than anything. Um, it's, it's the idea that, and that comes back to there's no cat A babies. Um, whilst I'm absolutely, you know, 100% wedded to the, uh, there's, there's an, a nature part of, of, of us, um, I, I think environment has a massive massive role to play so for me that the clinical model is that attachment our significant others how we learn to protect ourselves and how we then learn to explore and socially grow into the rest of the world so that's the clinical knowledge um, and I think that's the most important um, but but beyond that I, I think an underlying belief that Everybody should have mutual respect for each other. Doesn't always happen. So I should respect what the governor's job is. I should respect what the prison officer's job is. I should respect the prisoner who's had the courage to come and try and do something. And I should respect the prisoner who hasn't had that courage yet. So, and I, and I expect respect from them, from me as well. So I think there's that clinical model, if you like, but there's that total belief in mutual respect is is where we should go thank you whilst you're talking I, I was thinking that in practically every prison underneath where it says uh, we're an equal opportunities employer and uh, say no to racism it might say uh, we work in a relational way or something like that do you understand what that means that latter cliche um I've got my understanding of it. I don't know if that means I got it right. But I think for me, it links to what I've said, mutual respect, that we we are always in relationship with somebody. From the moment you're conceived, you're in a relationship with what 
who your mother is and what she's going through. So you're never not in relationship with somebody, whether she's this, this mother who you're the, the, the pregnant, you know, the fetus of is happy or being hurt. You are there when she comes out, if she's busy, if she's happy, if your family, if you're um, accepted at school or not accepted, you are always in relation. And I think to, to not see people in relationship and to recognize that has an impact, whether you recognize it has an impact or not, you know, we are always in relation. So for me, a relational prison is one that does recognize we have an impact and tries to work within that. So that's what I think. It means. Thank you. So Mary, Mary, what part of your work have you enjoyed the most? Because I think working as a psychotherapist, there can be the assumption that you're only doing psychotherapy all, all day long, but my guess is you're doing lots of different aspects of work in that role. Yeah, um, I love the people I work with, and I'm talking staff and prisoners. So, and, and I don't just say that as a nice to say, if you're going to a place where people are miserable all day long, it doesn't matter how good the work is. So, so for me, working with people that I get, I, I like and respect, is, is is vitally important okay this is going to sound really weird i love writing end of therapy reports um, <laughs> yes it does <laughs> i mean most of the men i've written them on will tell you i take far too long writing them but for me one of the things i think being in therapy in a prison can give people is some kind of coherent narrative of their life that they may not have had before so trying to work with them and produce, this is who we saw you are, and this is what you did with us. And there's where we're saying is, is what we think is useful for you now. And I was trying to write it in tandem with them. If I disagree, if I disagree factually with somebody, um, we'll check the facts. But if I disagree about something they say, they felt this and I thought it was something else, I will just put in the two things. I won't change it, but I won't not acknowledge them. So I think I think being able to to sum up for somebody their time in therapy and pre pre therapy is is a joy. Um, I love creativity, and I see that as partly creative. But I love let's have new ideas on things. Let's let's try this. Let's try that. Um, so I've I think, just got Mary, Mary, when you were talking about the reports, there's something quite therapeutic about them, isn't there? You know, if we, if we understand that people's trauma and and recovery from that is how people are met in their trauma, I think when you're writing a report, you're actually offering something that's therapeutically valuable. It isn't just a. Although, I mean, I was joking about the the you must you must you must be crazy to say that because they take so long to write these reports but actually there is something really powerful about a well-written report and i think sometimes when somebody has had hugely chaotic life it's it's really quite calming to be able to to sit around the other side of that though is you need to kind of warn people that you're going to be saying in very professional clinical sounding words some horrible things they've gone through and so saying to people beforehand i apologize this might not be easy reading is is important too um, but it's helping them confront it as well 
And so, I mean, aside from being a prison officer, obviously you've been a prison governor and also a psychotherapist. Uh, they're very significant roles, aren't they, in terms of the prison system, very present. How how do the roles differ and how do you understand the tensions between them? How, how have you managed that? And is that different because you've tackled them in that order? Might things be different if you'd been a... I mean, there are psychologists who train as governors, aren't there? I, I, um, I think any relevant experience you can bring to the world is good. Uh, I don't know about what order matters. Um, I think the role of prison governor is huge. Um, I keep thinking of it as, as having far too many plates to spin. Um, and, that, that, you know, so, and sometimes your attention has to go deep down and look at something, but for a lot of the time it's everywhere. And that's why you need a good team around you. But for me, it's total responsibility for the whole prison, if you're governor, or you're part of it, if, if um, you know, head of residence, head of security, um, whatever. But but there's so many more. I mean, a prison is a mini society. So there's so many different things to look at. And as you mentioned before, can be very politically um, weighted in whatever the, 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 the order of the day is. So it's, it's keeping that balance between what do your political people want, what's good for, for the, the, the people who are in prison, and for all the various publics there are, the media, prisoners' families, victims, victims' families, you know, keeping all of those things organised is, is the governor's role, <laughs> probably why I left. Um, it's, it's, it's also uh, a part of the civil service, so, so there's all of the, the sort of functional rules within that. Psychotherapist, I, I see as much, much more able to, to focus on, on one area, one contribution. And I think that contribution is helping, helping prisoners to make the changes that they want to make um, and, and stick with that change of mindset, not, not just suppress the, the anger they may have at society, but helping them not have that anger um so helping them to do that is the role of, of psychotherapy and it, in terms of being a colleague to operational staff i think psychotherapists part of your training is to stand back and look at the bigger picture so to be the person that says that and when we're doing it at the moment what's different about coming back with the pandemic what do we need to think of um how has this impacted on people? Won't there be obvious anger? Where's that getting displaced to? So, you know, if you're trying to run a prison, focusing on that as well, I think is not. So so offering that as a contribution, but not seeing it again as, as better or more important, but that it is an important part. Psychologists, I don't know. But. And how has, how, what is it like um, trying to rebuild the therapeutic regime after the pandemic? in a residential service like a therapeutic community. I imagine that's, I imagine that takes an, it's a big challenge um, because you're not at the start of something where you've got all the enthusiasm and resources that go with a startup um, project. And, and, and you're traumatised, you know. I mean, if you think of trauma 
Uh, I think one definition is sort of a thing that threatens life or, 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 or perceived way of life, uh, psychologically or, or physically. Then, you know, you mentioned earlier, David, that, that, you know, Brendan's been going for 60 years. I don't think in any of that time has it had to cease therapy for six, six months total. And then we could get little bits back and then so you know that that is and and to staff who are working there that is what they came in to do and they couldn't do it so they had to lock people up which is what they moved away from wanting to work in in a therapeutic community um so of course it's difficult to to get back and i and i think it it, it will be for some time the only support i was going to say weapon gives you an idea of what we're feeling but is to raise that awareness and to keep raising that awareness and to say it's difficult how the hell can it not be difficult so let's not beat ourselves up for not being able to do this and to know that it will take time um and pat ourselves on the back for, for what we have done you know i mean people lost family members people lost uh, a sense of who they are. For, for some of the men in Grendon, they just started in therapy and then it was locked down. And I often think that, you know, a lot of their early trauma in life for the prisoners was just do as I say, because I'm saying it. And some of that was, and go to your room. And what we did in pandemic was say, you do it because I say to it, go to yourself. And that can't not have triggered some memories and and therefore the responses and the defenses to that um so yeah i think yeah although although of course one might say that uh, much of the difficulty that uh, we have in running a prison service is because so much of it is kind of subterranean um, so the public can happily hear complain about prisoners being fed luxury meals and having big screen televisions and playstations without knowing anything about the real conditions of being in a in a prison um, yeah my 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 late husband used to say prison is um as punishment not for punish punishment you go to prison as punishment not for it quite yeah so Mary, we, we've touched upon, but not really gone into that other um, major um, group of staff who exercise power and influence, sometimes in a covert manner, the prison officer group. How does the work that uh, you do impact upon them? Well, positively, I hope. Um, you know... Grendon has, and I'm, I'm assuming other therapeutic communities, much less incidents of assaults um, and, and difficulties. So it, it, I think the work that, that all therapeutic units do actually helps people to see their role much more holistically and to, to work relationally, as we were talking about before. Um, I think prison officers are very often um, underrated, um, seen in a very one-dimensional way. And I, I find working with prison officers, even as, as a governor grade, 
really helpful and illuminating. I've, I've like, I like working with prison staff. Um, as a governor grade, there were some arguments between management and unions, but there was always, the, again, the people behind that. So for me, I think therapeutic work in prisons can only be an enhancement. I know that the Women's Prison Service um, adopted trauma-informed working across the whole prison, women's estate. And I'm, I'm sure there were some dissenting voices, but I never heard of any. I heard that people just found it was much better to work in that way. Um, staff that I've spoken to in Grendon and in other um, therapeutic community prisons um, again all said the same thing this actually enhances my work rather than makes it more difficult thank you so i think you've changed your work uh, recently haven't you what what's your new what's your new role um well i'm clinical training and development manager and it's part time which is very exciting <laughs> for me after all these years um, so I, there's a special um, in-house training course, which is three lots of three days for all staff, multidisciplinary, coming to work in prison-based therapeutic communities. And it's called TCAT, which is Therapeutic Community Accredited Training. And it's accredited by the Prison Service Therapeutic Community Department, which works with the OPD. Um, and so I'm updating all of those and I'm starting to, I've, I've done a few of, of the first level, um, and I'm just, just loving it. <laughs> it's really great. Um, again, that creativity side of it, you can update things. Um, you can spout off some of your own ideas provided that they're within the framework. Um, and it's lovely working with other prisons that are doing the same thing. Um, and again, that's why I'm so careful to not say it's just Grendon, because I think that, that we all learn so much from each other. So, so there's that, but I'm also um, introducing some other developmental ideas at Grendon, which is where I'm based for staff, um, for prison officers, um, for people coming in at a wing psychotherapist or wing psychologist when it's not prison trained or, or wing therapist to learn more about the prison service so you can come in as a wing therapist from the nhs or private sector and have people talk to you about psis and uh, what the omu and a sentence plan and you're going i think i should know this so i better shut up but actually you don't so what I'm running, just starting, is a familiarity thing. I'm just working with our senior probation officer now to get that going. What's all this? How does this work? So that, again, it's back to that joining clinical and operational staff, really trying to increase the common ground. Really. So. Yeah, it sounds great. And you bring so many years of experience to bear upon that. Were you going to say something, Naomi? Well, echoing that really, how, how good it would be to have that kind of orientation when you go into work in a prison. Oh. Can you hear me? 
we lost you. Oh, so I was just I was just echoing you, David, in that how fantastic to have that access to an orientation program to enable you to have familiarity with the various concepts that are used in prison, the various terms, and even I remember that term MDT obviously in the NHS means multidisciplinary team but in, a, in the context of a prison is mandatory drug test so you know to eliminate those kind of confusions um, I'm sure it'd be really valuable your training. And then what's really good as well is the governor at Brandon was 100% behind and she suggested so I, I feel that we're getting you know that, that leadership from the top that says yes this is the the way we want to go so that's really i'm really lucky really pleased. good so mary um you you come across as being fairly bouncy and energetic and yet you've chosen to work in a really challenging field for over 20 years how do you keep yourself well and in balance it's over 30 years <laughs> sorry <laughs> Um, well, I'm not sure I am well balanced, but um, they haven't caught me yet. Um, it's people, family, it's friends, um, it's a good glass of wine. Um, and I'm, a member of my family once said to me, you love a good course, don't you? I'm always looking on doing <laughs> new courses. And a lot of those are work-based, but currently I'm doing an art class which is every Thursday of the week, looking at different things. And I'm also part way through a two-year energy healing course, which I describe as being a cross between quantum physics and being an aging hippie. So it's all about this whole quantum energy field and how what intention you put in makes a difference and this sort of thing. So it's that. And, and, and fun. Oh, God, I really like to have a laugh. Um, sometimes quite sarcastically and so i have to bite my tongue but but yes um yeah i think your positivity really does come across and um i love that phrase you you live a good course mary and you should start your own <laughs> podcast i feel like i've um, been able to develop my own cpd program over the last over the last 18 months that's brilliant thanks very much indeed uh, mary is there anything you'd like to say to finish off no, you don't have to. I mean, I, I will. No, thank you. Um, and I hope I've done justice to it. I really do. So thank you. Well, you certainly done justice to yourself, which was the whole point. I think people will enjoy that conversation. Thank you.